Say hello to a new era of mental health care. Cerebral is here to help you achieve your mental wellness goals with professional therapy and medication management support. 100% online. You'll experience the all-new Cerebral way, an innovative approach to mental wellness designed around you. You'll get a personalized treatment plan from a therapist, prescriber, or both in a safe and judgment-free space. Your cerebral therapist or prescriber will outline a customized plan with clear milestones along the way, so you can get to feeling your best. With Cerebral, you're not alone in your mental health journey. We're here to empower you to live a fulfilling life. So take that first step towards a brighter future and sign up today at Cerebral.com slash podcast and use code ACAST to get 15% off your first month. Offer only valid on monthly plans. Other exclusions may apply. Offer ends July 31st, 2024. See site for details. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. We live in a world where the news is at our fingertips where we're one click or swipe away from the latest headlines. But how often do we stop swiping and scrolling and just listen? It's the difference between knowing what's in the headlines and understanding how it got there. I'm Malika Bilal, and this is The Take, Al Jazeera's daily news podcast, where we bring you the context and the people behind the global stories that matter. Subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts. Every time I hear you talk about politics or policy wonky things, there's a moment where you slip into Jesse Brown lazy hipster mode and you say, oh, but I'm so bored. I'm so bored by this topic. This topic bores me. And you think because a topic bores you that therefore it must be being covered in a way that's bad or incorrect. Jen Gerson of the National Post in Calgary, Alberta. Welcome back to Shortcuts. This episode of Shortcuts is brought to you by Jeff Mruss, Sean Sedgwick, John William Blakely, Louise Morin, Amar, Kurt Mueller, Kathy Kung, Sarah Lorinowick, Wayne Mabby, Rob McMahon, Michael O'Shea, and Kathy Daly. Kathy, why did you decide to be awesome? I find myself thinking of the next question I, I would ask, and I'm hearing it. This episode is also brought to you by CJFE. Canadian journalists for free expression are small, it is true, but they do big things. For example, one of the biggest obstacles to free speech in Canada are slap lawsuits, frivolous libel suits against public participation that really can never win in court, but which companies routinely launch against journalists or individuals who criticize or expose them, mostly to stop other people from doing the same. This is called libel chill. It is for real, and CJFE is fighting it by fighting for anti-slap legislation. I asked Tom, who runs CJFE, how it works. So if you're unjustifiably being sued for libel, a judge can throw that out before you have to waste hundreds of thousands of dollars um, paying lawyers to fight this company that's suing you for essentially telling the truth. I think 49 or 48 states have anti-slap legislation. Canada doesn't. 
We're fighting to get that passed. It's been introduced in Ontario. We have promises that the Wynn government's going to pass it without bringing any substantial changes. Um, we had almost had it passed before the last election, then the election was called, but we got it reintroduced. That's about to be a, a major victory, and then we just have to fight for it to come across the arrest, across the rest of the country. I volunteer for CJFE. I am a member. You should become one too. Go to cjfe.org, click become a member, and find out about the perks and pub nights with journalists and the annual review all of which you will get when you join me and become a member. Membership is reduced. It's just 30 bucks for listeners of this podcast. CJFE.org. Go do it. This episode is brought to you by AG1. Listen, taking care of your health is not always easy, but it should at least be simple. That is why for months now, I start every day by drinking AG1. I take a scoop of this green powder, I mix it in a canister with water, shake it up, and I drink it. I get hydrated and I get energized and focused and ready to take on the day knowing that I have vitamins, minerals pre and probiotics and a lot more. These are things that science tells us we need. They are also things that I don't necessarily get every day outside of my AG1. Listen, if there's one product that I'm going to recommend that will help you elevate your health, it's AG1. And that is why I have been partnered up with them for so long. If you want to take ownership of your health, it starts with AG1. Try it now and you'll get a free welcome kit that includes a shaker bottle, canister, a metal scoop, along with five free travel packs. You'll get a free one-year supply of vitamin D3 and K2 along with your first purchase. Go to drinkag1.com slash CanadaLand. That is drinkag1.com slash CanadaLand. Check it out. We meet here, friends, uh, at a turning point uh, in Alberta. Because of that, I have called upon the Lieutenant Governor and asked to have Albertans go to the polls on May 5th. I'm running to be premier. I don't run to be second place. You're you're predicting a PC majority, though. The last thing that we need are NDP policies. A 20% corporate income tax what for Ontario about? Our, or our Quebec. Our proposed corporate tax how rate you is 12%. To diverse, I'm not how, sure who's you briefing propose? you. I know that, I know that math 20... is difficult. Our top-line story this morning, the potential landmark defeat of the Progressive Conservative Party in Alberta. Is this possible? It sounds like it is. Oh, yeah, but as you noted, polls uh, in the past, especially recently, it seems, have been notorious unreliable. A new poll was just released moments ago. Polls don't always paint an accurate picture. If the polls are correct, every vote, even in traditional Tory territory, is being fought over. As the 2012 election proved, the polls aren't always right. Everyone was shocked, shocked. The polls were so wrong, so wrong. But there's a certain consistency to these polls now. They must be right. Jen. Yeah. 44 years. They're 43. It's 44 at the end of August. It would have been 44, so it's 43 years. All right, excuse me. 43 years of, pro- of progressive conservative rule in Alberta, and then yep. Post Media's headquarters here in Toronto tells all of its Alberta papers to endorse again the, the PCs. They tell everybody to vote for the Tories again, and today it's an NDP majority. Jen... <laughs> Do you, do, do you Albertans hate taking orders from Toronto so much that you will just do the opposite of whatever we tell you to do? Yes. Yes. That is the answer to your question. <laughs> don't stand on your head, Jen. Don't don't send us all of your oil and steak for free. I'm doing it right now. And you're going to hear me crash in this office and it's going to be a mess. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Did, okay. So we, 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 you know, we're uh, one of the organizations. So we, we reported, I guess, just, I mean, it was almost just a formality to call up Post Media and say, hey, 
these bizarre endorsements of Prentice, uh, where did that come from? And Post Media, or rather the Edmonton Journal, they confirmed for us that that was not their idea, that it was Post Media headquarters that made them do it. D- did it matter at all? Did the endorsements mean a thing? Um, yes, but not what people thought they did. They mattered because they helped to further entrench the NDP narrative. If they did anything, they actually swung shot, They actually swung votes to the NDP. And I think the fact that that is what they did, if they did anything at all, demonstrates just how disconnected the endorsements were from what was happening on the ground. And to me, demonstrates one of the real risks of writing endorsements without having a a very deep connection to the place you're writing about. Yeah, I mean, I think it certainly played into the idea that the establishment was sort of coalescing around this idea that, that, you know, Prentice must go on, uh, and it had nothing to do with what was happening in Alberta. I'm not sure that that many votes were decided based on those endorsements, but it certainly helped kind of like paint a consistent picture, didn't it? Uh, You can't talk about this election without using the word populism. What this election ultimately became about was a reaction to the governing elite, to an entrenched elite power base within Alberta. When those endorsements came up, what they actually did is they helped to establish the narrative that the powers that be in this province are in the tank for the Tories. They actually did nothing but undermine the credibility of the actual papers themselves. And that is, if you were on the ground, if you were covering this election, if you really got a feel for the, the populist wave of anger that is, was coming from the electorate, you could, you could sense that risk. It was a giant danger Will Robinson moment. Like, you're just helping to entrench the, all of the stereotypes and all of the um, senses of injustice and entrenched power bases that, that, that people are reacting against. And that was what was the problem with those endorsements from my perspective. I don't have a problem that the, that the ownership um, of the organizations that I work for uh, uh, asked for an endorsement to be written. There's, I mean, owner's going to own you. Um, they have that right. Um, and I have no real qualms with them wanting uh, these papers to make an endorsement. I have no issues with that. Um, I think that there was a, a a a problem with the wisdom of those endorsements because, as I've mentioned probably too many times now, they were just so disconnected from um, the conversation, from the anger, from what was actually happening in Alberta. Okay. You know, I've heard this argued and a lot of people sort of tweeted snarkily to our coverage like, oh, yeah, duh, of course Post Media Headquarters ordered this endorsement. That's how endorsements work. And, you know, that's echoed in you saying, you know, owners are going to own. I think it's a bit more complicated than that, and I think that there was a story here. When you've got the Edmonton Journal, the Calgary Herald, the Edmonton Sun, the Calgary Sun, all of a sudden speaking with one voice with this sort of copycat endorsement of Prentice when some of those papers had been viciously critical of Prentice, of the conservatives, all of a sudden you've got them just sort of like they're a puppet for some owner who and, – and there is a level of deceit. It's not saying here here is the, the endorsement from Post Media Headquarters. No, it's the Edmonton Journal is now telling you to go vote for Prentice. He's the best choice. I think that there was something – deceptive in that. And, and, you know, from what I understand, I mean, some of this is very public. Like, you know, you had journalists from those papers expressing absolute shock on Twitter. Um, and then I, you know, we were receiving reports that people were like in tears in these papers because it really humiliated any notion. And this may be a Pollyannish notion, but some people believe it, that a newspaper exists to serve the interests of its readers. I mean, I don't know who those endorsements serve, but it was not Albertans. 
I think you're right to some extent. I think that there's absolutely a story to be done in this. And, and for, from, from your perspective as, you know, the, the curator of a media criticism blog and a media criticism podcast, absolutely. It's a perfectly valid story. And I'm not, I'm not trying to undermine uh, uh, the, the validity of, of, of poking at that and exploring that. Not, not, not in the very, not in the least. Um, the only thing, and I'm not going to sit here and defend Postmedia's decision to write those endorsements because, as, as I've already expressed, uh, you know, I, I think that they were unwise for a number of reasons, and I think you brought up some perfectly valid points. Uh, but, I, but I, what I would take issue with is the notion of it being deceptive. I think if newspapers have something to answer for in in the way they manage editorials and in the way they manage endorsements in general, uh, it's in not being clear about what they are. You know, they're, 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 they're supposed to represent the opinions of the publisher slash owner. And, you know, if you own the asset, you know, you, you, you really, I can't argue that you shouldn't have that space. I mean, you know, to this idea of clarity, which you bring up, I absolutely agree. You know, there is such a thing as the editorial board of the Edmonton Journal. These, these papers have editorial boards and we're told that they go through a process of meeting with candidates. And, you know, so it's, it's very similar to the Globe and Mail story that uh, we reported a while back about the editorial board going through the motions of, uh, you know, endorsing a candidate in Ontario only to have the publisher switch their endorsement at the end. That's fine. The publisher can do that. But we need to know that that was against what the, you know, in this case, it was against what the editor-in-chief of the Edmonton Journal wanted to do, which was not endorse anybody. Uh, in the Globe's case, they actually flipped the endorsement. So, yeah, I, all of this may be just like insider journal talk about endorsements because I, I still maintain that, like, I don't think people vote based on endorsements. But I still pay close attention to them, Jen, because I think that that's when, you know, this this whole question of what does a newspaper actually exist for and, and who's trying to use it, our owners trying to use it to sway popular opinion or for political outcomes, it's political season, especially when it looks like there's going to be an upset. That's when – you know, the, the, the strings are actually visible very briefly. That's when we can get a sense of what these newspapers in part exist for. But I mean, this, this, this issue gets brought up every time we talk about endorsements and journalism, right? Are, are we being clear enough about whose opinion is being expressed? Um, and I think that there is a fair clarity argument that, that maybe if it is coming from the owner, that, that the owner should just be like, hey, I'm the owner and this is my endorsement. And that's what it is. You know, maybe there is a lack of clarity um, in terms of how we, we go about uh, undergoing these processes. And, and maybe that's not clear to the reader and it should be. And, and again, I've made you terribly uncomfortable because you are a post-media employee and it's terribly rude of me. And why don't we just talk about the media's role in this election itself, which maybe we could talk a little bit more freely about. Um, because I, I, I just wonder what the – you know. How much, how much we kind of overstate the importance of, you know, we had a previous conversation, you and I, where we were looking, you know, the polls, do they tell the truth? Can you trust them or not? And there was a lot of uh, hand-wringing about that, a lot of punditry throughout this election, as there always is. Did it matter at all whether the media went one way or the other? Was this just sort of a protest vote? People had had enough for practical reasons. It was time for a change. And we were just sort of uh, bystanders telling the story of something that was happening organically. I generally operate on the assumption that nobody reads anything I I write because if I if I start thinking that people are going to read what I write, I might self censor or I might try to um, change what I have to say in order to you know not have an outcome. Or, you know, I, mean, like I, try, I try to pretend that I'm writing into a vacuum and it's just look, this is what I think is happening and I put it out into the vacuum and what impact it has on the world is is detached from me. I can't I can't control I can't control it, so I try not to have an impact on it which is maybe a counterintuitive philosophy to have. But I think we have to have a conversation about narrative and the narrative during an election campaign. Um, get away from the conversation about polls, because people will talk about polls and if they're valid or not till, till the nth degree. I mean, I tried to avoid writing about polls as much as humanly possible. 
if you were to, if there's one criticism I have about the media's role, the Alberta media's role in covering this election, it's in the total disparity of um, uh, coverage of uh, candidates from 2015 to 2012. There was comparatively little, if not, basically no vetting of some of these NDP candidates who aren't just been elected. Um, We've got university students. I mean, I wrote about a yoga teacher who is a very nice lady, by the way. You know, we've got a lot of union representatives. We've got a real mixed bag of people with some very interesting, good experience and just basically regular schmoes and paper candidates who got swept up in this completely unpredictable, unbelievable wave of NDP support. And there has been almost no vetting, almost none of these guys. Uh That stands in very, very stark contrast to 2012 when, you know, a pastor's blog, when he said, written several years ago, several years before the election, you know, remember the lake of fire comments. So the pastor um, wrote that gay people were going to die in a lake of fire. A PC operative dug this up, started seeding it to the media. Media just absolutely blew up on it. This became the defining issue of the campaign. It completely quashed Wild Rose's chances of forming government, destroyed uh, Daniel Smith. I mean, this became the turning point that managed to salvage um, uh, the the dynasty for yet another several years under Alison Redford. Um, I I don't think that the people who are right-wing in this province are necessarily wrong when they say that the NDP kind of got a pass here. But I don't think that that was necessarily about ideology. I think that was about narrative. I think that um, the narrative of this campaign was, oh my God, there's finally an alternative who can kick these guys out. Holy crap. And that became the narrative. And, And that was in very stark contrast to 2012 when the narrative was, Wait a minute. Who are these? Who are these people who are going to kick the government out? The story behind um, the election, that the story that starts to get crafted around a campaign, that alone can can, as we've seen, um, decide governments. It can it can kill and and kill governments and kill leaders and and raise them raise them up as well. These measures will protect the constitutional rights of Canadians, the rights of speech, the rights that violent jihadists seek to destroy. Last weekend, more than a 1,000 demonstrators marched through downtown Vancouver. It was part of a national day of action happening in cities across the country. A nationwide showing of opposition. Against a bill that's being called reckless and dangerous. Experts warn that broad measures in this bill could lump legal dissent together with terrorism. Uh, The privacy commissioner confirmed in his statements that he believes, for instance, that there's a significant loss of privacy rights. We have been told by numerous security experts that this bill will not actually improve our security. The bill is being opposed by the NDP and Green parties. NDP leader Tom Mulcair is reiterating his fight against Stephen Harper's Anti-Terrorism Act, Bill C-51. But I think that a lot of Canadians, and especially Conservatives, people who care about our rights and freedoms of all political stripes should wonder what about C-51 could bring someone like Conrad Black and me to the same position. Constituents in my riding, they are unanimously critical and opposed to this bill. As MPs are getting ready to vote on Bill C-51. We are going to examine this legislation closely and consult with experts before voting on this bill. And then it became a law. 
I hope I'm wrong, Jen. I mean, we're, we're recording a couple of hours before they're going to vote on it. And I hope that this is like a Dewey defeats Truman thing, but it's not going to be. I don't, I don't mind saying that I hope that this bill gets, you know, defeated, but that's not going to happen, is it? Well, we do live in a uh, parliamentary system and the government has, had, has been elected a majority. So that usually means that the bills they put forward pass. The government has a majority by a minority of Canadians. Like, Stop with ahead. this. Stop with the What's proportional that? representation conversation. You want to have a conversation about proportional representation, we can have a conversation about proportional representation. Um, but don't think for a second that that's necessarily going to magically fix the political system or change outcomes to your favor. It's just a different political system. And it's a different political system that you have to win in this system in order to change to correct. Right. All I'm, I, I'm not suggesting that uh, some magic cure-all, but I am drawing attention to the fact that that a minority of Canadians have given this government a mandate and the entire civil society has rejected this bill. Up and down, left and right, academia, activists, young and old, everybody hates this bill, and we're we're just getting. If we had a system where where bills were decided by a mass referendum, then that point would be relevant. But we don't. And believe me, you don't actually want to live in a system where just about everything can be subject to a referendum because then you have California, and California is a shit show. We have I want to live in a system where the government actually some, the in some way reflects the interests. Or, because the thing is, it's not a controversy where there's really anyone in support of it but government. It's not as if there's like a huge a swelling of conservative support for C-51. You don't hear anyone but this government and like the cops speaking in favor of this bill. Yes. And again, how is this relevant to like the underpinnings of the entire system by which we govern our democracy? I mean, you, whether or not you like it, this government has elected the conservatives a majority mandate. They have the opportunity to kick them out in 2011, and a future government has the ability to completely rescind C-51 in its entirety, and then some. Hence democracy. I mean, this is what it is. Now, if you want to talk about and, and, and whine around like a lazy hipster about proportional representation, because that's the cool hip thing that the kids today now are whining about in politics, then you are absolutely free to. But that whining does absolutely nothing to get rid of the conservatives. It does absolutely nothing to rescind their mandate. It is absolutely nothing to put someone else in power. And it and it especially is useless, because if you actually want to, inc- to create a proportional representation system, you have to win the system as it is now. I have never even used the term proportional representation on this program or or else what really, lazy hipster though I may be. And to your point that we could put in through a democratic means a government that will just scale back C-51, can you name me an instance where we have ceded our rights to law enforcement and then taken them back? Because it only seems to get pushed in one direction. So is this a conversation about C-51 or is this a conversation about how you don't like politics and or our current parliamentary system? Uh, you know, I think it's a conversation about uh, just the, the frustration that I feel and that I think a lot of people feel at, at uh, living in a, in a country where everything that has been said and all of the progress that has been made in, in mobilizing this, all the argument, oh, people aren't engaged, they're not active, they don't vote. People have been active on this from the beginning and it just – like it never mattered. It never was going to change anything. And, you know, this government 
no, no, no. Now you're now to, you're to now this. you're you've this gone from you've gone Jesse on. Brown, you have gone from lazy hipster to apathetic hipster in like five seconds here. Just because this didn't rescind this particular bill doesn't mean that it doesn't doesn't matter. If you can continue continue the activism, if you can continue the protest, if you can continue to keep it on the agenda, then you have a real shot of making this an election issue. And if this is an election issue, then that's something that people will have the opportunity to vote in by voting the conservatives out of power. That that it's not like it's not like the anger for C fifty one is ameliorated the second the bill's passed. Well, the journey from laziness to apathy is not actually that far. I will point out it's actually a lazy little stroll. So I don't mind you. Uh you know, that I, I, don't, I don't see any kind of contradiction there. I'm not stumping for this, but I do think that this has become an election issue. I think we're going to see that play out. If, that, if this becomes an election issue, I would be thrilled. By all means, let's make it an election issue. Here, on Canada land, C-51, go look it up. It's bullshit. Make it an election issue. Call your, your MP, man. Tell them you're not going to vote for them if they don't, if they don't uh, uh, take a stand on this in the future. There. I can I can do that? I can do that here? You act you have the power. It's it's not just some corporate media class whose personal responsibility is to engage you personally, just Jesse Brown in politics. You have the power. You do. I promise you. You think because a topic bores you that therefore it must be being covered in a way that's bad or incorrect. That's what I call the brown fallacy. I'm inventing that word. That's the brown fallacy. Just because it bores you personally, Jesse Brown, doesn't mean that it's bad. It doesn't mean that it's being covered poorly. It just means it's not your bag. And that's okay, man. It doesn't have to be your bag. You don't have to be engaged. It's not a. It's not like you don't get points deducted as a citizen if you're not interested in it. Yeah. So I, we do have a, a a disagreement here. I I absolutely feel like when something important is presented in a way that discourages engagement, then that is uh, on the press. That there is room for the press to make this urgent and and engaging. And this is something that you know I I disagreed with Chantal Libera about. And she eviscerated you. She eviscerated you. She eviscerated you. It's our job to show people to, to prove to them why it matters. You can't put a gun to people's heads and make them care. Now, I like I personally am in, become insanely passionate about, you know, um, uh, politics and the pipeline stuff and the oil stuff. I've become insanely passionate about that. And I try to let that passion seep through into what I actually produce. But I can't put a gun to people's heads. Chantal was entirely correct. I can't put a gun to people's heads and force them to care about the things that I care about. All I can do is try and present things as in, a, in a, as a compelling way as I can, and if people choose to come along for the ride for me, that's great. But if they don't, I can't get angry and upset about it because most people don't. But that's all I. That's all I'm saying. Who's saying talking about guns to anyone? Said I'll, I, that's why I dig your shit. Is that you actually do see it as your role? You, this is your job. You live in these issues. You have the time to get passionate about it. Your readers don't. They're counting on you to distill it, not with a gun to their head, but with rhetoric, with headlines that might be considered sensationalistic or you know just clever and funny to make it entertaining as well as informative. And I like your work because you do that. But a lot of people don't do that. But Jesse Brown, a lot of people find may, might find what I produce entertaining where you find it boring. The problem is that you're assuming that just because you personally find it boring, that it's bad. It's because it's not personally catered for you and your interests that you dismiss it. I do not buy the idea that Canadian politics is boring or it's just for insiders. I think that American political discourse 
even though it can be vicious and nasty, one thing that everybody who's putting those shows out cares about is that it's interesting. And I don't care if you're watching Fox News or CNN Crossfire, any of those shows that get so much criticism. What they do care about is that they put on a good show and they make issues sound like they actually matter to people. We don't do that here. And like every show in this country should be fighting with its last dying breath to put out content that matters urgently to Canadians. And that and, and, and there's too much complacency and there's too many shows that, that the only mandate they have is to fill the space. And there's too many papers that are just trying to fill pages. And The show that makes Canadians care, okay. The one that actually gives Canadians a reason to care about this stuff and, and actually does think about the public interest. Great. We'll get right on that, Jesse. I'll get right on that. <laughs> Jen Gerson, uh... Thank you very much. I, I, I think I think we're getting Jen Gerson raw today. We're getting the real Jen Gerson. Yes, the tired Jen Gerson. The, the, the Jen Gerson on the edge. I need some more coffee. <laughs> that is your Canada Land Shortcuts. <laughs> I hope you enjoyed it. You can email me at jesse at canadalandshow.com. I read them all. I respond when I can. I'm on Twitter at Jesse Brown. Jen, where can people find you? Twitter.com slash Jen Gerson, J-E-N-G-E-R-S-O-N. I will take all angry hate mail now. That would be great. Oh, I, I think you just earned fan mail today. Uh, the website is canadalandshow.com, and the crowdfunding site is at patreon.com slash canadaland. I make this show with Katie Jensen, and the next episode of Canada Land will be up on Monday. The next episode of Canada Land Commons will be up on Tuesday. If you like this show, support it. 